a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am very happy once again to welcome my fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, I, I look forward to our conversations each week. Mm-hmm. and, and, and it, As do I. I want you to take this as a compliment. In part, I look forward to them because things are getting crazier by the minute, and you are one of the few sane voices out there that I find myself thinking, I wonder what Eric's take is on you know this given issue. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Let's, let's hope I can continue to deserve it. Okay. Now I'm going to put you to the test here because okay. <laughs> we're, we're headed straight for some, some real craziness. Let's talk a little bit about the challenge to the election. Tomorrow, Congress will be meeting ostensibly mm-hmm. to certify the Electoral College results. Um, Attorney Lynn Wood has been raising some eyebrows, and uh, I don't know. I have a feeling like we are standing at, uh, at, at a pivot point in history. I'd like to get your take on the passing scene. Is, is, the, is this craziness and wishful thinking, or is there possibly substance to these challenges to the, uh, the election? Well, this could go radically in either direction. Linwood is either certifiable in terms of his mental health, and uh, shortly to become a resident of a place that has mattresses on the walls, or he's got something. The man has literally put his professional credibility on the line, and more so than that, uh, potentially uh, his, his, his financial security, because if, if what he has been alleging is, is false, if he, can't, uh, if he can't produce information to back it up, the man's going to be sued into the poorhouse. So I, I just stand back at this and marvel. It is, it's not subtle. It's extreme. Either he's absolutely out of his mind or we are about to witness revelations that are literally unimaginable. The kinds of things that he's been talking about that, that he's supposedly got the goods on, uh, particularly with regard to Chief Justice John Roberts, right. it's, it's breathtaking. Well, and and it's it's fraught with a bit of danger, and I say that from the standpoint of um, the the people who stand to lose the most are people in positions of power, who are very likely to uh, I don't I don't know what they're capable of if they are cornered, but I I'm willing to to I'm, I'm thinking they aren't going to just give up and say okay you got me. No, that's what worries me the most. Um, I don't think the uh, the Dallas solution is going to work in this case because that would be too obvious. But what really does trouble me, in the in my opinion, unlikely event that these allegations uh, can be can be um, substantiated, is that we're going to have some other kind of distraction. That some awful thing is going to happen within the next 48 hours or so to shut people up about the election and get them talking about some other thing. Uh, I worry that that this this stuff was brought to light in advance to give the people who stand to lose everything the opportunity to make a move before the public is aware of whatever might be in in the works. Yeah, I'd be sleeping pretty light if I was in Iran right about now because that's one of the rumblings I'm hearing is, well, it looks like Iran is up to something. Uh, Maybe we'll be at war within the next 48 hours. Well, I'm not worried so much about what's going to happen in Iran as as what could happen here in the United States. What if, hypothetical scenario, uh, we have an EMP burst? 
Uh, mm. What if the entire grid goes down? What if something even more horrible happens? Immediately, everybody would stop talking about the election, and uh, the public would be absolutely terrified and terrorized once again, and supine and ready to do whatever they're told. Right now, they're beginning to be a little bit less willing to do what they're told. I think the narrative has many cracks, not just the election narrative, also the woo-flu narrative. And it could all come unglued. So everything, everything is on the line, regardless of what Lynn Wood produces or doesn't produce. Uh, things are, are picking up speed, and I think things are going to get very interesting over the course of the next few weeks. Someone on a discussion board that I like to frequent uh, had made the comment a couple of days ago, um, the next 72 hours, or what happens within the next 72 hours, could determine the future of the United States. And at the time, I, at the time I thought, well, that's a little bit dramatic, but as as tomorrow draws closer, I'm like, no, I think that's that's actually probably right on the money. Yeah, Lenin once said something that was very pithy and I think very accurate. He said that uh, sometimes nothing changes for decades, and then sometimes everything changes in the matter of a week, or words to that effect. And that's absolutely true. Uh, no one could have imagined in uh, 1917 that the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty would just be deposed and that the communists, a handful of rabble-rousers, would take over this vast empire, and yet they did. So these things do happen every once in a while. And, of course, Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Right. Um, you know, they don't happen often, but these things do happen, and we may be getting a front-row seat for something that's very big about to happen. Okay, now I don't mean to put you on the spot too badly by asking this, but where is your attention going to be? What, what do you deem most important to pay attention to? Well, obviously, in my opinion, I think the most important thing is what happens in D.C. tomorrow. You've got a volatile mix of things. You've got the Lynn Woods stuff. Uh, you've got the, co- the congressional certification or not of the, uh, the Electoral College results. You've got a huge crowd, apparently as many as several million people, who are going to descend on the Capitol tomorrow uh, peacefully, hopefully, to uh, protest what's going on and show their support for the president. Um, and I think it's very probable that there will be counter-protesters who are not so peaceful and the whole city could go up in, uh, in flames. Um, it's going to be a big day tomorrow. Yeah, I, I admit that's that's the part that's giving me uh, excess stomach acid as well. And yet, okay, realistically, there's nothing much I can do about it, at least from where I'm sitting, other than watch and, and comment. What uh, what do you recommend for people who are, are sitting here watching back and forth going, OK, um, at some point, it looks like, you know, we're, we're going to have to to make some kind of a decision or commit to some kind of a, a way forward. What do you mm-hmm. consider the, the most useful way forward or the most productive way forward that, that doesn't involve uh, fighting in the streets? Well, you know, you and I have touched on this before, and I think Americans have got to learn, uh, relearn, looking to themselves for leadership. I think too many Americans sit passively and wait for their leader to tell them what to do. I think it's very important that we begin and have begun, hopefully, to make provisions for ourselves and our families to potentially ride out a difficult period of time. And uh, by doing such things as going out and having enough food, get the food that you need for yourself and your family so that if it becomes necessary that you can hunker down in your house for at least a few weeks and hopefully even longer than that. Um, you know, just in, inure yourself to the degree possible from all of these external forces over which you don't have any control. You do have control over your immediate environment, and that is the area where I think people should, should take action to protect themselves. No, I, I agree completely. In fact, I'm gonna, I'll take it one step further. I would say if you, if you live in a neighborhood or even if you, your neighbors are you know, somewhat distant from you, uh, this would be a very good time to know 
your neighbors, and I mean really know them, know the ones that you could trust, know the ones that might be problematic, but uh, be a good neighbor to the best extent you can and know who, who you could um, team up with if you had to team up in order to, to help one another through tough times. Absolutely. Um, establishing community bonds, getting to know people, and getting ready is, is ultimately the best that we can hope to do. Whatever change is going to happen, for the good in particular, it's going to happen at the local level. Uh, we have much more influence over who becomes our local sheriff, for example, uh, or who it is that becomes the chairman of the board of supervisors that determines what goes on in the schools, things of that nature, than you have in any congressional, much less senatorial or presidential election. Yep, I'm I'm with you there. Now, you mentioned that there are there are some cracks in the official narrative that are giving you um, a, a sense of encouragement where you live. Talk to me about uh, about what you're seeing in terms of the woo flu. Well, the the bad thing about hysteria is that you can get people to stampede. Uh, the good thing about hysteria is it's difficult to maintain it over the long haul, and we've been uh, under this regime of hysteria now for almost a year, about eight nine months of this. And I do think it's beginning to get tedious and tiresome, and a lot of people are beginning to have had their fill of it, particularly since we've now uh, transferred into the land of the absurd where uh, the death of every elderly person is announced as a woo flu death. Uh, the other day, um, Dawn Wells, who played Marianne on Gilligan's Island, died at the, uh, at the young old age of 82. And, you know, somehow, of course, it's reported as a, as a COVID death. They're reporting people who've died at 100-plus years old as having died of corona and it's absurd most people understand that while it's absolutely sad when anybody dies and we don't want to see uh dawn wells or any other uh, elderly person ever go away we do die and and it's it's a natural death after a certain point what's the average age of life expectancy in the united states for a man i think it's about 78 years and that's um the average death of the of the typical person who dies quote unquote of of the covid virus is 80 you know, people are beginning to notice this kind of stuff, and it's just becoming comical almost. I'm with you there. So some perspective definitely uh, needed for this. And maybe when we come back here in a moment from the break, uh, we can talk about whatever happened to the flu. I've seen a couple yep. of charts here lately that show, oh, yep. COVID, COVID infections and problems. Why, they're off the charts. But flu? Uh, yep. what's, the, what's that? <laughs> yep. Okay. Sounds great. We will take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. If you haven't been to his website, if you don't make it a regular part of your daily search for knowledge, you're really missing out. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from EP Autos is my guest. Eric, uh, I, I mentioned as we were going to break that uh, I'm seeing charts, and this is primarily on Twitter. It's from, from organizations like the American Institute for Economic Research, among others, who have closely followed you know, the, the official narrative of COVID and everything. that They've been very good at picking apart some of the inconsistencies. One of the big ones is... You know, COVID and COVID-related deaths seem to be off the charts, or at least the way it's being reported. But the common flu, wow, there's nothing but crickets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I have not confirmed this yet, but I briefly scanned something 
to the effect that the total number of people who uh, died over the course of this past year, over 2020, uh, was about the same or slightly less than the number of people overall who died in 2019. So, you know, make of that what you will. It's very clear to me that the the case count, the death count, is being grotesquely and deliberately exaggerated to instill the maximum amount of fear. Um, you know, it's much more scary to hear about 275,000 or 300,000 people uh, who've, who've supposedly been killed by this virus than it would be to hear that, well, uh, 15,000 people have died, uh, which is the number that I gather uh, of people who have died without comorbidities, who are not very elderly, in which case this is a trivial risk to most people, an infinitesimal risk to kids in particular. That's, in my opinion, the most egregious aspect of all of this, the way kids um, are being traumatized psychologically and being made to wear the diaper, practice sickness kabuki, be terrified of each other, when there is literally less risk to kids of dying from corona than there is from being crippled in, in, in after-school football practice. And you point out in a recent column called Corporate Cultism, this is this is definitely one of the areas where focus is being placed. We've got to teach the kids. We've got to make sure the kids know, you know yeah. their place. Talk to me about uh, why is it that corporate America is so invested in this uh, sticking to that narrative, wear the face mask, you know, do what someone in authority is telling you. Why are they so vested in this? I think it's because they're vested so much in the government. Uh, you know, nominally, they're still private corporations, but they are so entangled with the state that they, I think, have become identified with the interests of the state. Uh, you know, if you look at, for example, the car business, the car business now has fallen all over itself to embrace this insane electric car agenda. Um, and they've done it because the government is mandating electric cars. So they figure, well, if the government's going to mandate uh, our, our market, mandate the people buy our products, good for us. We'll, we'll focus on that and we'll tell everybody how wonderful the electric car is. And that scales to all of these other woke shibboleths, including this business about the woo flu. You know, they're, they're, they, they no longer have any independent mindset that's focused on their customers or uh, on the free market. They have become part and parcel of the government nexus. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I went to, I did some Christmas shopping last month at uh, Cabela's. Which is one of my favorite stores. I mean, come on, this is everything out. It's the best toy store around. But I, but I was looking at some of the things, like the the little stickers on the floor that had Orwellian sayings, like uh, "standing six feet apart, we're together," or something along yep. those lines. And it was just yep. like, "Love is is you know hate, war is peace, ignorance is." Strength. Sure. I was just like, "This is right out of Orwell." Sure. And how about when you walk through the aisle of the grocery store and you have to listen to the. Uh, instead of the former music that you listen to, now you're listening to injunctions uh, about practicing social distancing and thinking of the community. Uh, whatever happened to businesses uh, providing the goods and services that we want? And spare me your political agenda, please. Yeah, well, and it's it's scary, but uh, sometimes it's the businesses that are becoming the most vigorous enforcers of these non-legislative mandates that are being treated as if they were law. and And that, to me, I don't know. Maybe there's just people out there who've been, you know, waiting for an opportunity to, to get promoted to safety patrol or something, but, boy, they're, they're taking it to, and running with it. Well, wouldn't these big corporations love it if they were able to extinguish uh, all the alternatives to themselves? You look at Walmart and the big chain stores and all of that, and this, uh, all, this whole woo-flu thing has succeeded in effectively crippling, if not outright destroying, most of their competitors. They have made bank 
Look at how much money they have earned. Amazon, all these things, record amounts of money because people have been forced to shop with them and nowhere else. So they'd love it if they were in a position, a totalitarian position, of making you buy their products and making you obey because you don't have any alternative to them. Well, this seems to be moving us in a very curious direction. You refer to the holy jab, the uh, the vaccine mm-hmm. that um, is is more than likely at some point going to be forced on us. What do you mm-hmm. see as far as the developments in, in that arena? Well, you know, I use those terms for a very specific reason, and it's not just to be a comedian. Uh, I, I consider this whole thing to be literally a religious, a cultic movement. Uh, in which faith in this, uh, in the sanctity of wearing a porous holy rag is somehow going to protect you and protect others from the, the unseen death that's in the air. And you, know, you have to genuflect before the cult leaders, who, who was Pope Fauci the 15th, as I describe him, and so on. Um, but yeah, I think that they're going to use the same techniques that they've used to coerce the, the wearing of the holy rag to enforce the getting of the holy jab. They will do things like require you to produce a vaccine passport or evidence that you've been vaccinated in order to travel. This is already happening. A number of airlines are doing this. And I think it could get potentially a lot worse than that. It could be such that you can't shop unless you produce evidence of your your, your, your up-to-date vaccine-ness or get a driver's license and all of these other things. So they don't actually have to pass a law. You'd still be free to not get the holy jab. Problem is you can't function in society without the holy jab. That's the way they're going to do it. You, uh, you also mentioned in another column um, how we know it's a show. I mean, a lot of people obviously have bought into it. They are fully, you know, devoted yep. to this idea that, no, this is what we have to do. Talk to me about how we can know, though, uh, for instance, in the case of the masks, that uh, this is more show than actual, you know, oh, sure. substantive well, you've protection. Heard me, you've, heard me re- you've heard me refer to the things as face diapers as well. Yeah. And that's also done very specifically because it's literally true that if you put a, a child's diaper over your face... That qualifies as a quote-unquote mask. In fact, anything qualifies as a mask so long as it covers your face. However, uh, we ask the question, then, well, what, what medical value is it to put a diaper over your face or a porous old bandana uh, or any other thing that, that cannot stop viral particles? I think if this weren't a farce, there would be standards. There would be specific things that, 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 that detail or describe what is an acceptable quote-unquote mask. And I think that it minimally would be an N95 or better, probably an N100 or better respirator that is actually capable of preventing the, the transmission or the reception of viral-sized particles, which are enormously small. These little masks that people are wearing, read the box. Anybody who's listening to this who disbelieves me, read the box. It says right on the box, because of liability reasons, that this thing will not prevent the spread or the transmission of COVID-19. And the reason for that is that viral particles are extremely small, and they go right through those porous materials. So it's all theater. And we also have the word of Pope Pope Fauci XVI, who, remember, (laughs) told us six months ago that wearing these masks is, and he used the word theater. Remember that? Wow. I, I, I'm just, look, I, I, saw, I saw some video yesterday of a guy and a girl meeting up together outdoors where it was cold and both wearing masks, but as they come together, he breathes out and you can see his breath in the cold air sure. right through the mask, right into sure. her face. And, and somebody had posted it and said, this is all you really need to know to understand how well that mask is protecting you. Yeah, if you were to go to an Ebola hot zone, what would you wear? You'd wear one of those, those moon suits with positive air pressure that made absolutely sure that nothing from the external environment got into your suit. Ebola is also a virus. 
that's how you deal with viruses, and that's why when you look at these immunology labs, these places where they actually deal with viruses that can kill you, they wear those moon suits. They don't walk around wearing uh, a dust shield that they picked up at Lowe's. No, and, and lest people misunderstand, well, you guys are just complaining because you don't like to be told what to do. This really is about ownership. The people who get to make these decisions about their bodies and their health are the people whose bodies we're, we're referring to. Not somebody else, not uh, Pope Fauci, not you know a coalition of experts, but that person. Eric, well, yeah, and, 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 and I don't like to be told what to do. Who does like to be told what to do? You know, if, if I'm causing a, a harm to somebody, that's a separate matter. But otherwise, I'm, I consider myself to be sovereign over my corpus, my body, myself, and my life. And I'll do what I want to do. Thank you very much. Okay, that's Eric Peters. EricPetersAutos.com is his website. Eric, great to talk with you as always. We'll touch base again next week, and I'm sure we'll have some interesting things to cover. We will. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Once again, I want to mention uh, my sponsors for The Brian Hyde Show. They include Alta Bank. That's my buddy, John Staples. And if you are within the sound of my voice, uh, particularly within the state of Utah, and you're looking for a mortgage for your home, maybe a refinance on your existing mortgage, John's the guy you want to talk to. Alta Bank is uh, a very, very established lender. And right now, the, the interest rates are so ridiculously low. Now, they're not always going to be there. You understand that. So time really is of the essence. If you want to contact John, go to the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Again, show notes for January 5th. Right at the bottom of the page, there's a contact link where you can reach out to him. Tell him thanks. You appreciate him sponsoring the program. So one of the big challenges that we face is uh, the uh, the degree of unreasonableness that just kind of permeates our society. I'd never heard this term before today, but uh, we live in post-persuasion America, which simply means that uh, there are a lot of people who are beyond the point where they can be persuaded. Who knows? Maybe Maybe we're among those people. Although I'd like to think that I'm still able to assimilate new truth into my life when I encounter it. But generally speaking, could we agree that not very many people are really uh, feeling persuadable at this point? Jeff Deist, writing for Mises.org, writes about 2021, Welcome to Post-Persuasion America. Now he says he first heard this term used by Steve Bannon. <clears throat> architect of the surprising 2016 Trump campaign. And it was in a PBS frontline documentary titled America's Great Divide. Speaking way back in the pre-COVID days of early 2020, Bannon asserted the information age makes us less curious and willing to consider worldviews unlike our own. He says, we have access to virtually all of humanity's accumulated knowledge and history on devices in our pockets, but the sheer information overload causes us to dig in rather than open up. Anyone who wants to change their mind can find a whole universe of alternative viewpoints online, but very few people do, especially beyond a certain age. And for Bannon, this meant the Trump campaign and politics generally was about mobilization rather than persuasion. Now, because we can always find media sources which confirm our perspective and biases and dismiss those that don't, the notion of politics by argument or consensus 
is almost entirely lost. And no matter what our political or cultural perspective, Deist says there is someone creating content tailored to suit us as stratified consumers. Thus, liberals, conservatives, and people of every other ideological stripe live in vastly different digital media worlds, even when they live in close physical proximity. Now, he says this overwhelming amount of curated and segregated white noise comes at us every day, from 24-hour news to Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Idiotic platforms like TikTok and Discord vie with video games for the attention of our children. And all of it leaves us numb and exhausted. Our attention spans suffer. We slowly lose our aptitude for deep thinking and serious reading. We attempt to replace wisdom and understanding with data and facts. But because information is so abundant and readily available, it becomes worth less and less. Information is cheap, literally. Isn't that interesting? I I see great truth in what uh, Jeff Deist is saying here. Now, he says, for our grandparents, knowledge was analog and it came with a price. Gatekeepers in the form of media, universities, libraries, and bookstores acted as editors and filters. Walter Cronkite, the most trusted propagandist in America, delivered one version of the news every night. The local newspaper did the same every morning. Even just 30 years ago, it was often no easy task and no small cost to obtain books and literature not easily found in local or university libraries. So if someone today wants to read Austrian economics, for example, a particular boogeyman of Bannon, they can do so virtually at no cost other than time. They don't even have to leave home. Their smartphone in their palm holds a lifetime of reading and learning in just this one discipline. No physical books, no college, no tuition, no librarian required. And then he poses the question, so why don't more people do it? And the short answer is most people are beyond persuasion. Now, Jeff Deist says, look, this doesn't mean we should surrender to the forces of economic illiteracy or give up trying to win hearts and minds for political liberty. On the contrary, he says, we should redouble our efforts to cultivate anyone interested in civil society, real economics, markets, property, and peace, especially those under 30. But this is not a numbers game. He says we should focus on those who can be reached, not some mythical majority. Our task is to reach some people narrowly and deeply, not a majority of people superficially. We stand in contrast to the white noise and opposed to the superficiality and anti-intellectualism of our age. Mobilizing the few is far more important and far more effective than foolishly trying to persuade the many. I can't tell you how deeply that rings true to me. And you've actually, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you've heard me talk about this. I am under no illusion that I'm going to have the biggest audience out there. <laughs> nope. I think it's, it's a pretty safe bet. I will never enjoy the biggest audience. But I'm okay with that. I'm absolutely at peace with that. And it's not because, hey, mediocrity is where I am, am most content. I just simply understand that the message that uh, that I deliver the the message upon which I base you know my my daily content isn't something that is going to resonate with everybody. But for those people who are seeking it, I promise you, I'm giving you my best effort. My heart and soul goes into giving you the best quality of content that I possibly can because 
I'd rather serve those who do need to hear this message or who are actively seeking this message than try to water it down to make it more palatable for mass consumption. So I guess I'm, I'm finding a lot of comfort in what, uh, in what Jeff Deist is saying here. He says, H.L. Mencken was right about believing in liberty, but not believing in it enough to force it upon anyone. Just as we oppose foreign interventionism, we should stop trying to remake those U.S. cities and states which are beyond help. We need to recognize that tens of millions of Americans are likely beyond persuasion in the direction of sensible political or economic views. Millions more are committed socialists who would readily agree to nationalize whole industries and radically redistribute property. By definition, these are unreasonable views. So how does one use persuasion where reason is lacking? Post-persuasion America requires us to think about how to separate and unyoke ourselves politically from D.C. Our immediate future lies in hard federalism, which dovetails with the soft secession, which is happening already as millions of Americans vote with their feet. Mobilization and separation, not persuasion, is the way forward. So says Jeff Deist. Now, I'm thinking about this in, in, in practical terms, and, and it uh, takes me back to something I've touched on a couple of times here in the last few days. It's an alternative to the idea that we've got to just be out there fighting it out in the streets. I know uh, Representative Louis Gohmert from uh, Texas made a comment last week which just sent shockwaves through the pundit class and through some members of the political class. Oh, the talking heads. They were just incensed that somebody could say something that, like he said. And, and here's what he said. He said, by the courts refusing to take a look, to actually hear the case and examine the evidence of election fraud, he says the message that they're sending is, if the courts won't adjudicate this, we're going to have to adjudicate it ourselves in the streets like Antifa. Now, he was not advocating for violence. What he was explaining was a very unpopular truth, which is when the, the jury box, so to speak, has been nullified from, from the sides of the court to where the courts are like, nope, we're not going to touch it. What other recourse do you have? I know you have the, well, you can always shut up and just take it. That is an option. But for a lot of people, that's an option that's unacceptable. I'm not going to just shut up and take my eventual enslavement or the enslavement of my children or my grandchildren. Now, that doesn't mean that the default is, well, therefore, we got to get out there in the streets and get your pitchforks and your guns and your assault rifle. and No, no, that's acting like Antifa doesn't solve the problem either. But that's that third solution. And this is something that Jeff Deist has touched on before. Mobilization and separation. I don't know what the end result looks like, but uh, I know there are people voting with their feet, and I would be absolutely willing to do the same. Building a little enclave, if you will, of like-minded souls who can cooperate voluntarily rather than being forced by you know, some central planning bureaucrat. Yeah, that sounds a whole lot better than slugging it out in the streets. I don't know a nice way to put this, so I'm just going to put it as delicately as I can. You know what I really want more than anything? I just want to be left alone. Leave me alone. Leave my stuff alone. Let me choose my way forward peacefully, and I will do the same for you. Unfortunately, there are people who just can't leave others alone. And when they reach the point that they're using violence to accomplish their means, well, 
That's where defense, self-defense comes into play. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program also brought to you in part by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Now, if you have uh, if you have need for commercial insurance, I can tell right now you are probably in a situation that's slightly more complicated than the average homeowner or the average, you know, person just trying to, you know, take care of their day-to-day insurance needs. Commercial insurance, it's a whole different animal, and at some level, you are probably asking yourself, do I really have all my bases covered? Well, if that's a question in your mind, I want you to get in touch with my friend Steve Burgess at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. He can take it from there. He can answer your questions. He's an extremely trustworthy guy, and I'm proud to have him as a sponsor of The Brian Hyde Show. You can get a contact link at the bottom of today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So, we were talking about uh, how do you deal with people in the age of post-persuasion America? How do you deal with people who are beyond persuasion? And this can take a lot of different approaches, okay? It's not just political. Saw a great uh, article by uh, Brian Kaplan. This was uh, published on uh, everythingvoluntary.com. Sorry, I had to double check. If I'm going to send you to the website, I might as well send you the right one. And yes, there is a link to this in the show notes. The, The article is titled, My Hands Are Clean. And I want you to hear how he handles, you know, the the people who are beyond persuasion, who nonetheless are accusing you of something. He says, suppose someone accuses me of being a pickpocket. I respond, I have picked no pockets, therefore I am not a pickpocket. My accuser could naturally retort, oh, yes, you are. I have video evidence of you picking pockets on three separate occasions. Now, he says, what would you think, though, if my my accuser instead declared, well, there's a lot of pickpocketing in the world. You've personally done nothing to stop it. That makes you a pickpocket. Now, Brian Kaplan says, I submit this is an absurd and unjust opinion and position. You lead with a baseless accusation. Then, instead of apologizing, you use Orwellian redefinition to label virtually the entire human race as pickpockets. In the end, you've divided humanity into a teaspoon of noble anti-pickpocketing crusaders and an ocean of vile pickpockets, the majority of whom have never picked a pocket in their lives. I think you probably see the parallel he's making here, right? He says, this is exactly how I view most modern accusations of racism and sexism. Imagine the anger a typical white male would provoke these days by announcing, I am utterly blameless for whatever racism and sexism exists in our society. Indeed, many people would take this very sentence as proof of the announcer's racism and sexism. To so react, however, is absurd and unjust. He says, you don't have to crusade against pickpocketing to avoid being a pickpocket. And you don't have to crusade against racism to avoid being a racist. And you don't have to crusade against sexism to avoid being a sexist. Just keep your own hands clean. What could be more obvious? Now he asks, doesn't this view lead to self-satisfied complacency? As soon as you ask that question, he says, you're in the vicinity of the noble lie. Telling innocent people they're guilty is more motivating than telling innocent people they're innocent. 
so we should falsely condemn people to spur them to actions. He says, in the words of Nietzsche, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. Ooh, anti-fascists. You may want to uh, revisit that one. (laughs) Nietzsche aside, Brian Kaplan says, it's far from clear that preaching near-universal guilt spurs people to action. Consider this alternative appeal. Sure, you're an innocent bystander, but wouldn't you rather be a hero? Maybe, just maybe, he says, you can motivate people to do good without slandering them first. Oh, and he adds, P.S., don't worry, I won't call you a slanderer for failing to join my crusade against slander. I don't care who you are, I guarantee at some level you have been accused of sexism, racism, or if, you know, if you're a woman or, you know, if if there's some degree that, okay, you're not a white male, uh, so you're not automatically three strikes, you're out. How about uh, we just accuse you of privilege? Oh, you and your privilege. I love the way Brian Kaplan approaches this. Just because I'm not crusading against racism or crusading against, uh, against privilege or crusading against sexism doesn't mean I'm guilty of any of those things. Keep your own hands clean. What could be more obvious? And the sad thing about this is it's not just, you know, political activists that are doing this. Churches are jumping on the bandwagon. Everybody wants to virtue signal. Be careful how you throw those accusations around. I like the inspire, don't require approach that he suggests. Sure, you're an innocent bystander, but wouldn't you rather be a hero? That does a lot more to motivate people, or at least to motivate me, to consider whatever he has to say. All right, one final thought. This, too, landed in my email inbox, courtesy of everythingvoluntary.com. If you haven't subscribed, I would strongly recommend check them out because they have got some phenomenal material. This is one from Kent McManigal, Being Neighborly and Responsible. He says, I may have mentioned that we have a lot of wind here. Yesterday was one of those blustery days, but today wasn't bad. So this afternoon I got out and was picking up some of the trash that always ends up in my yard, snagged on cacti, mesquite, and yucca, and just laying on the ground where it happened to stop. Well, among the litter was an Amazon Prime bubble pack but it hadn't been opened, and it wasn't empty. It apparently had blown off someone's porch and ended up in my yard, disguised among the scattered debris. He says, I looked at the address and saw that it belonged to the house next door, so I took it over and handed it to them. Now, he says, this wasn't the house of the neighbor I get along with. (laughs) These are the neighbors I've had trouble with since before they actually moved in. But he says, I was nice, friendly, and returned property they didn't even know they'd lost. Now, Before you think he's going to break his arm for patting himself on the back, listen to what he's trying to spell out here. He says, I am far from the only person who would do the same. Most people would return that package. But he says, why do some people imagine that the whole world needs to be based on how bad people act? And specifically, the point he's making here is he says, this is part of how I know liberty works. It's still in my best interest to do the right thing. Even if I'm not exactly on the best terms with the people I'm helping, it may be repaid or not, but it's still the best thing to do. And I would just point out, you know, in his defense too, nobody coerced him. There was no threat. Well, you know, if you don't take this to them, you're guilty of, you know, stealing their property or something like that. 
whatever he needed to govern his actions or to motivate him to do the right thing and return this to the people who were missing it, that came from within. That was voluntary. That was an authentic act on his part, as opposed to a coerced act, you know, with the threat of a ticket or, you know, perhaps some other legal ramification hanging over his head. It reminds me of, of the speech that Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave to the Harvard uh, class back in 1978, a world split apart. That speech, by the way, is online, and it's, it's worth your time to read some of the warnings that Solzhenitsyn, recently having been exiled from Russia, had for the West, because he saw us making a lot of the same mistakes that brought despotism to power in his homeland. And one of the things he talked about was the kind of moral mediocrity that allows tyranny to flourish and allows evil to flourish. I don't even think he referred to it as tyranny. He, he flat out experienced evil. He referred to it as such. And I'm paraphrasing when I tell you this, but he talks about how uh, the, the law itself is too impersonal to meet the noblest inclinations of mankind. If you're just simply going by the letter of the law, well, the law says I have to do this, or it's legal, so I know I can get away with this. If that's what's guiding your actions, he says, that leads to a kind of impoverishment, moral impoverishment. I think about this whenever I hear of people, you know, sicking the code enforcement authorities on their neighbors. Well, I didn't like the fact that my neighbor has a car that's been sitting in his yard for years and years and years. And I understand it may be an eyesore to you, but so what? Why would you bring thuggish state force into a situation where you, if you really have a problem with it, why not go and talk to the neighbor yourself? Well, it's easier to just, you know, call somebody who'll come out there flexing the arm of the law, threatening legal consequences, possibly criminal consequences, so that I can get my way. Do you see the point? Solzhenitsyn was making. Can you see the point that Kent McManigle is making? Liberty isn't just the freedom to do whatever you darn well please. It's the freedom to do the right thing, even when it's sometimes hard to do. And I think that's something that we miss out on. People who will do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing to do, those are the kind of people who are capable of self-government. People who for whatever reason, believe that everybody has to be forced to do the right thing under every circumstance? Yeah, they're the ones who are saying there ought to be a law. You can guess which one is in the majority in our society today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.